My guests today on Mission Impact are Renee Rubin Ross and Crystal Cherry. We talk about how nonprofit boards can work towards becoming more inclusive and more diverse. We explore why it is so important to not just name the challenges boards have with diversifying, but also identifying some possible solutions and positive actions to take to create movement. Why it's important for groups to unpack and own history, including their own group's history, and why white people need to accept being a little uncomfortable during conversations around race. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your nonprofit host and strategic planning consultant. Welcome, welcome Renee and Crystal to the Mission Impact podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So I'd love to hear from each of you on this question. I'd love to start with a question around what drew you to the work that you do and what motivates you? What would you describe as your why? Go for it, Renee. (laughs) Hi. So I'm Dr. Renee Rubin-Ross. And um, a lot of my work is really focused on inclusion and bringing out the wisdom in the room, bringing out all voices. And I would say that some of this comes from from my experiences as a kid, who a geeky kid in the back of the library, not feeling included and really observing and thinking about who is part of the group, who has power and how do I change things? And then more recently, I one of the things that I do is I run the Cal State East Bay Nonprofit Management Certificate Program. Our students are a rainbow of people of all races and in teaching board development for the program, our students have asked me you know, not just to share the problem of board composition, which we're going to be talking about, but what are some paths to solutions? And that's what that's what started to motivate my work and also then connected me with Crystal, actually. And I'm Crystal M. Cherry. And I want to say, as I started doing this work with Renee, we encouraged each other to to share our race autobiographies. And that's something that we do in the work that we do with our boards. And as I started to really think about mine, I realized that there were many times when I was the only, uh, in many cases. I was bussed out as a small child out of the neighborhood that we lived in and I went to school uh, with predominantly white children from elementary school all the way to high school. So there were many times when I was the only uh, in the classroom and then graduated from high school and went to a predominantly white Jewish college, Hofstra University in Long Island, New York, uh, and was part of a, of a small program called the New College at Hofstra University. And I was the only there. Uh, and then in many cases, after, after graduating from college, you know, I worked on teams. Uh, I remember I worked at the Bank of New York in New York City um, and uh, was the only for a short period of time. They did eventually hire others. But so I've always been the only uh, in, in, in many instances. And, um, you know, because of my personality, I'm kind of a type A personality, outgoing, not shy, you know, not afraid to, to enter groups and introduce myself. But there were still times where I felt like, ah, do I really belong here? Do they really get me? Do they really understand, you know, what my lived experience is like? I remember in college, you know, my peers during the summertime were backpacking across Europe. <laughs> and I was working at Macy's, you know? <laughs> so I couldn't afford to backpack. I didn't know anything about Europe. I was like, that's not part of my reality. So because I've always been the only, you know, I think this work uh, about inclusion and belonging is, 
resonates with me. And particularly as we talk about boards, because I've been on boards, I've, I've sat in room with boards, and I know how uncomfortable it can be just for board members, period, that don't know each other. But then when you throw in race and culture and background, um, then it gets kind of weird. <laughs> and uh, if people don't get it, then people might not feel comfortable speaking up. And you will find sometimes that people of color on boards are quiet um, because they're not sure whether or not their voices are going to be heard. They feel like the only, and they're not sure whether or not it's okay to speak up, if what they're going to say is going to really be heard and respected, if, if, if they can weigh in and it'll matter, all of those things. So that's kind of why I got started in this work. And then particularly working with Renee, she's awesome. And, you know, even though we're very different, uh, we have this thing in common and uh, we have synergy and we respect one another and we work well together. So here we are. Awesome, awesome, thank you. Yeah, and you named a couple of different things there. Um, you know, this entrant kind of, challenge that hasn't, ha there hasn't been a lot of movement in terms of diversifying boards, um, having them, uh, you know, folks will recruit people, but not necessarily um, create a culture that really builds that inclusion. And I love how you talked about, um, you know, not just stating the problem, we, you know, we, you know, many, many people have done lots of research around, around the problem, but love that you guys are working towards a solution. And, and just to name what the it is, is really working towards helping nonprofit boards become more equitable and, and inclusive and create a, a culture of belonging. So what would you say are some common challenges that nonprofit oh, Carol, boards face? Carol, I just wanted to just appreciate what you just said, which was you said equitable, because sometimes we say, we hear people, when we start working with people, we hear them say, oh, you, you're trying to make boards more diverse. And mm. I just really want to call that out and say, from everything you know we know and we've heard and all that without the kind of the pieces around culture and around um understanding how boards are connected and how all of us are connected to the larger inequities in our society you're, we're not going to make much progress so we do talk about inclusion and equity a lot too so yeah, thank you for that yeah yeah i appreciate it. i appreciate you calling that out and i was reading recently and, and I'm sure others knew this way before me, but how the whole language around diversity came about was basically white cor dominant corporate entities wanting to avoid the whole conversation around race and wanting to call it something different. So uh, appreciate you calling that out. <laughs> so what would you say are some common, I mean, I, I said, I said, you know, I appreciate that you don't, don't just uh, name the, the problem, but let's, let's just say what are some of the common challenges the boards have in working to be more equitable and inclusive? Well, we talk about um, knowledge gaps. So often things happen and then some people, and it is often the white people, don't really understand what just happened. So very concretely, we had a board that, you know, brought us in and they had had some contentious conversations. There were several women of color who left the board. And, and when, they, when the organization reached out to us, they didn't say, this is what happened. They just said, well, we need some, we need some consulting. What do you say? You talk to us, you, know, you support us. And then as we got into our interviews and all of that, we started to learn that, that there had been some really hard uh, conversations and, and interactions. And even after this happened, the people who were involved still didn't understand 
why this is that they never really went back to those people and said, hey, is there something we can do to bring you back? You know, so it's just like this uh, real lack of understanding about what had happened with these women, which, you know, we we didn't interview them ourselves, but we're guessing that they experienced this. You know, we know that that there was some um, aggressive behavior towards them. And certainly that there were most likely microaggressions that happened over time. And they probably just felt like, I'm not being respected. I don't want to do this anymore. Who would? And, and so, so, but but from the perspective of some of the white people on the board, it was like, oh, why can't we just talk this all out? And, and not understanding the larger dynamics. Crystal, what do you, what do you say? Yeah, and uh, you know, we received some resistance when we started talking about white supremacy culture and what that looks like. I remember the boy chair uh, pushing back. Um, and he was one of the main uh, reasons why the women left because they they went to him with their concerns and he kind of blew them off. Um, and it wasn't until we worked with him uh, for a couple of months that he really started to realize um, maybe his, you know, how that he was being complicit in this and that he was also a part of the reason why these women left. Um, but it took a while for us, and he did come around. Um, but initially, he was kind of curt with them and um, dismissive. And so, um, you know, it's with this deep dive work where we really ask people to take a good, long look at themselves. And we have them do the race autobiographies, as I mentioned earlier. We do some race caucusing where we separate the board by race. And Renee talks to the white people and I talk to the black people, the people of color. And, um, and some really, really gritty conversations come out of that experience. And essentially what happens is, what I learned is that, you know, people of color are angry uh, and, uh, and white people are fearful. Uh, and so when we come back in the room, we realize um, that, you know, unless we start having these conversations where white people really can kind of, they're confused and fearful. They don't know what, what, what they, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to fix it. They, they, they feel shameful. Um, they feel like we're trying to put them on blast and make them embarrassed. And, and they're like, you know, I wasn't there. I'm not responsible for what happened. I wasn't there during slavery. And that's one of the things I tell people to disarm them. None of us were here when slavery happened, right? So no one's pointing the finger at you and you and you. What we're just asking you to do is to own the history and to accept the fact that because of what happened, some people live a certain way and some people don't. Uh, <laughs> And that still has ramifications hundreds of years later. And while neither of us were there, um, I um, still uh, struggle with some of the disadvantages of what's happened to my people. Uh, and maybe Renee has some, some perks and bennies, um, um, some privileges that you know she got because of her background and because of the color of her skin. So we just want to call people out and say, listen, we're not trying to make you feel bad individually. We just want you to see it own it and not ignore it anymore. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned something that you, you do with boards, a race autobiography. Can you say a little bit more about what that is and kind of what comes out of that conversation? Yeah, so we got, uh, we got this, this exercise originally from this uh, organization called RISE where they teach about facilitating racially just spaces. And what it is, is we, first of all, we, we give people some questions ahead of time. Think about when did you, when did you first notice race? When did you talk about race? How, how was it discussed in your family? So that they're thinking about ahead of time. Then the two of us model this together. 
and it is active listening. So whatever I'm sharing, uh, Crystal says, you know, Crystal doesn't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that really happened. You know, it, but it's actually just, um, wow, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you opened up and, and shared that. And then Crystal shares and the same kind of active listening. And then we send people off into breakout rooms and let them for, you know, three or four people talk. And, and listen to one another in the same way. And people um, just really love this. I think that it's so interesting. There are certainly uh, you know, statistics now about our society becoming more segregated and that it's harder to, to have these conversations across honest conversations across race. And yet I, I do think that people are really interested in understanding um, the perspective of somebody who's different from themselves. And, it really has deepened, deepened connection, deepened empathy. And that we believe is the way to start making progress in terms of breaking down all the other hard stuff that is happening. Because like, I care about this person. And so I want them, I, you know, I care about them more. I understand their story. And so I now, I want them to feel like they're part of this group. And I want them to feel like, um, we value what they are bringing because it's, it is needed in this setting. Crystal, I wanted to follow up on one of the things that you talked about. It's kind of the different experiences that folks have based on racial background um, and the, the shame that you talked about a lot of white people are sitting in and then kind of act out of. Um, and I think, you know, white fragility has been, been well described, but, um, you know, I think that, that, that oftentimes I know when I'm I, myself and then working with other white people, is that initial reaction is they're saying I did something bad and perhaps they, they did do something that was harmful that they need to own up to and, and take accountability for, but that shame can be so paralyzing. Yeah, and so, you know, uh, what we've learned is, you know, so, some white people, they don't wanna feel uncomfortable. Right? They don't they don't want to feel that that wiggly feeling when you're in the room and you just like something feels itchy on my back and you know you're just kind of feeling uncomfortable. And so they opt out. And so <laughs> so which is what happened to us when we were working with a, a client in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. We had a client where we were doing Renee and I were doing some deep DEI training with and it was a large group and it started out, I don't know, 30, 30, 32 people or something like that. And then at, by the end, we realized the group had dwindled down and who was like blaringly absent was white men. Mm. Um, we, ha we had white women, we had black men, we had black women, but we looked around and we were like, we're the five or six white men that we started this training with. They just opted out. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to talk about it. He just didn't come. And, um, and, and that board talked about having some accountability for them. You know, you can't just not come because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for all of us. Um, but if we're really serious about, you know, about trying to change our culture, then we all have to sit here and deal with, you know, this discomfort and they just opted out. And so I think that's why, um, you know, people of color are so angry because white people want to just opt out. They, they don't want to teach their kids about it. They don't want their kids to feel uncomfortable. They don't want to feel uncomfortable. And we're just saying, you have to look at it. You have to look at it in the face. You have to own it uh, and not own it like you, you're personally responsible, but own it that this is just a reality of what's happened to us. And yeah, I, just, and I, I mean, mean, definitely that, that white privilege of, you know, just 
being able to opt out and being able to kind of say, oh, I'll, I'll worry about that tomorrow. And obviously it's not the experience of most people in the United States. So yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I, you know, it's just seeing that as a, as an unfortunate dynamic. Yes. I, I was going to just add on to that, that, that uh, many of us believe that our society is better when people of all races can thrive and really understanding like that's the vision and so it's like well what needs to happen in order to move towards that vision and one of the, a great book on this is the sum of us by heather mcgee um and and it's funny because we we just did a, a webinar for network for good and we were talking about this and it was all about building belonging right and we talked about it a lot in terms of race and how you know people of all races should feel like they belong on a board and belonging is very specifically I am part of the circle. And then someone, a colleague of mine just listened to this webinar and said, oh, wow, this really applies to, you know, to the people who feel left out, to the white people who feel left out. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. Because what this is saying is when we think about all the people in our society and everybody feeling like there's a sense of belonging, you're thriving, it's actually good for everyone. Right. So that's the I mean, that's the you know, I know that there's so much fear around this as if something is getting taken away. And, and that's the, the white people's fear. But at the same time, it's like, well, what what is the positive vision? And I for myself and in this work and what we talk about, how do we keep holding that positive vision and, and for, for, you know, for ourselves, for our clients, for for these boards? I'm going to, I could go on this longer. But. <laughs> but you know, our society perpetuates this. I and mean, we have this capitalist society. We have this patriarchal society. And this whole thing about if, if you gain, I lose, right? It's not like we can both get there. I can't, I can't have it nice things and you can have nice things, right? If I have nice things, that, that means that you're going to have less nice things. And, and, and that's what, that really is what the bottom line is, is that, you know, we, we're, it's this competition. I have to maintain power. I have to maintain, um, you know, a, a influence. I'm the one that has the money and I'm pulling the strings. And if I give him the opportunity to pull the strings, that means I'm going to have less power. And that's essentially what this book that some of us talks about. But that's really the root of what's going on with this whole diversity, equity, and inclusion thing. You know, boards have been historically white male, right? They have been the ones that have been making, you know, there's 64 million board members in this country. They have been the ones that have been calling the shots about how nonprofits have been operating, how the monies are being spent, decisions on what happens to black and brown children, what happens to women who are pregnant, what happens to, and you know, all of the things that we know, all the missions and causes that are out there in the nonprofit space. These boards who have been historically white male have been the ones that have been making the decisions about what happens to millions of people. And now what we're saying is, hey, wait a minute, the world doesn't look like it used to. And there are more brown people in the world than it's ever been. And how dare you make decisions? Hello, does this sound familiar? How dare you make decisions about me without allowing me to weigh in on those decisions? And so now we're saying move over and let other people who actually come from the communities that you're working with have a say in what happens to them. And, and the white folks who have had that power is saying, I don't wanna move over. I mean, I know, right, it's, it's politically correct to say you should, have a, you should have a seat at the table, but I've always had the seat. I don't wanna right. make room for you. I don't wanna make room for you. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's basically what's going on. And so people will come to us and say, yes, we want to, we want to change our culture. We want to change the composition of our board. But then as we start working with them, we realize when it really comes down to doing the real hard work, they may not, they may not really mean it. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of organizations and, and um, boards fall in the trap of the diversity piece of we want to recruit you know, people beyond white men or white men and white women to be on this board. And they actually don't think about how it's gonna, how they need to shift in terms of their culture and be and more why. open. And I, I also, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm hundred percent with you, Renee, on the, that's the vision of where we want to go. And I, sometimes I'm a little fearful that that can fall, that can, that white people just want to say, okay, let's get there. How do we do that? <laughs> We're just all the same, you know, <laughs> like I don't see color yeah. uh, piece. So, so, yeah. um, you know, we thank you for saying that Carol, we, we each talk about this as this is, you know, you're, you're on, we are going to help. What we're going to do with your board is unfreeze you because, mm. and by, by starting to deep in conversations around race, I, another thing that we want to mention is like, everything, you know, from research is you need to talk about race. Because if you do not talk about race, if you're not able to talk about race, then anyone who experiences racism is those experiences are made invisible. And so it's not enough to say, oh, we serve uh, diverse communities. I mean, you, you really need to be specific. And, and only by doing that can you start to really pull out inequities in the society and do something about them. Um, but you're right. It's, this is like, do you want to do this work of building belonging? And, and, you know, very simply, do you feel like people who are equity is defined as people who are closest to the problems should be weighing in on the solutions? It's either a yes or no. Either you believe that or you don't, or you believe that someone else who's really far away somehow knows what should happen, which sounds very you know patronizing to me but <laughs> and you know you know carol while we we focus primarily on race i mean when we talk about diversity we talk about all the isms i mean not only just color and and background and ethnicity but you know you know able body versus disabled right you know cis straight white heterosexual against you know people of color who are lgbtqi right you know and so when we talk about diversity, we're just talking about difference, right? Coming to the table being different than what has normally been at the table. <laughs> you know, so Renee and I focus a lot on color and race and background and ethnic, you know, background, but we're really talking about it all. So I don't want us to just be pigeonholed to talk specifically about race, which is our focus and which we think is really, really, of course, obviously important. But when we start talking about belonging, we're talking about all those isms. Right. And all those individuals who are historically left out um, to be at the table in the boardroom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's a hundred percent in what you're saying, the, the language around belonging, you know, probably I would guess I could go out, out on a limb and guess that almost everybody has had an experience of feeling left out or feeling not like they weren't belong. They, they didn't feel included. And so being able to connect into that just as a, at a basic human level is really helpful. And I think 
um, you know, starting with race, it's kind of, you know, the, you know, it's so deep in our history in terms of the U.S. specific context. But I, but I think, you know, I think there are um, folks around the world who actually listen to this podcast. And so I always make a point of saying, you know, we're talking about this from a U.S. perspective, but at the same time, I don't think it's a uniquely U.S. problem either. So, um, so what would you say are some first steps? You've talked about some work that you've done with different clients. Um, what are some first steps that boards can take in terms of becoming more inclusive? So we, I mean, we, so again, one of them is uh, deepening one's ability to talk about race. And that might mean, um, understanding who is on the board. One of the really, um, another thing is, uh, is getting a sense of whether people feel, uh, feel belonging. And I, I told the story not, not long ago about, you know, we had this conversation with this man named Carl, this white man named Carl. And we said, well, do the people on your board feel belonging? And he said, oh yeah, of course they do. Of course they do. Everybody feels so much belonging. And then I said, well, how do you know? And, and he was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I asked my three friends, you know, and they all said that they feel belonging, you know, <laughs> like, well, there's another 20 people on the board. Do you know anything about, oh no, but I'm sure they feel belonging, you know, like, so, <laughs> so, so what we do when we come in, we do some kind of assessment that is interviews and a survey. And there's, you know, we're a cross-race team. Sometimes people feel more comfortable talking to one or the other of us about what's going on and we're listening and then we share everything back and it, and one of the principles is even if there's one person who has some information that person might be might feel like wow this is this is a super welcoming board if you're white but i am you know i'm black i'm a latino i'm asian american i don't feel welcome here you got to listen to every single voice and really understand what's going on so first just getting a sense of of what's happening yeah, I Absolutely. think that 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 um, taking that step to really gather some, you know, good information, qualitative, quantitative, and then mirroring that back to the organization so that they have that fuller sense. So it's not just the four people that I happen to be friends with on the board right. and talk to on a regular basis. And so I, I, I think I know what everybody um uh, you know, the, the, the bad phrase of, well, I think I'm speaking for everyone here. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> you're right. never, right? Um, even paying attention to who's speaking up in the, in the meetings and who isn't. Um, who are you yes. hearing from? And I think some people are, are pretty attuned to that and others just don't, uh, you know, don't notice it at all. And so that can be so helpful. And Carol, I'm a big proponent of doing self-work, right? And so I always tell the board that before we can start collectively working as a group, you really need to do a selfie. You know, you really need to take a selfie and, and, and kind of look at yourself in the mirror. This is all part of that whole race autobiography stuff. It's like really start thinking about who you are and how you feel and where you fit in. You know, why do you feel the way you feel about other groups? How do you feel about your own self? Like where do, where do you fit in in this whole thing? And so Renee and I, during our you know our training we will you know we will show videos we will um encourage art reading articles and we, we copy chapters out of books right and we send them to the board members and we ask them to read and then we come back and we talk about those things and so i think you know doing your own self-work so that you can kind of look at your mirror, yourself in the mirror and say you know what i do have biases 
you know, I do feel this way about this group of people. I have heard, you know, certain things and I believe that, you know, and so really kind of breaking that down to kind of see where you stand in this space and then come back to, is that really how I want to be? You know, is that really how I want to navigate through this world? You know, and maybe there are some stereotypes that I've bought into that are not true. You know, and so I think when we start to really take a real hardcore look about who we are and how we're behaving and how we may be contributing uh, to what the perceptions are about groups, um, if we can really get people to really see that and start breaking that down, I think that that is another next step to coming back together in, in the room as a group and saying, okay, I looked at myself, I've, I've had the conversations, I'm ready to come and talk to you all about what's happening with me and then how we can together work as a group to maybe make some change. And I just, I just wanted to add, I mean, going on to that, that uh, the, we model that ourselves, like as a, as a white person, I feel like I need to keep learning. I need to keep listening. I need to keep, keep stepping back. I have my own communities of, of, you know, places where I learn as a facilitator and trainer and that are centering BIPOC, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color in this work. And, and so that's really a suggestion that we make for, you know, for the white people in the group too is, yeah, we're going to give you some resources and we're going to share some, some great information, but there is, there is such a, there is often an, a lack of awareness about bias, about racism, and, you know, that it's, there's some real catching up that the white people in the group need to do. And, and so, you know, we support them as much as we can, but this is where we do say, all right, we're going to, we're going to unfreeze your group and you're <laughs> going to need to keep talking about this. And it's, it is, if, you know, if we took 400 years to get to this place, it's going to take a long time to untangle all of this. Right. And I always say, you know, give yourself a little grace. You know, there's no fixed endpoint to this work. Like I, it is, as much as Renee and I talk about it and read about it and write about it, we're still learning. Sure. You know, and she, she's always sending me information. I'm like, oh my God, Renee, that was so good. That was good stuff, you know? And so give yourself some grace. It's going to take a long time. You're not going to be able to undo everything that you've learned in your 55 years in, 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 in three hours, right? And so give yourself some grace, but start start and keep and keep it moving right and yeah, then we absolutely. also talk about um you know finding some champions finding people who may be a little further along than you are and um and i did a lot of that i i, I interviewed i would reach out to people on linkedin like cold cold calling people who like either wrote an article or blogged or i saw they did something amazing and i was like can we do a virtual coffee can i get can i get your ear for 30 minutes i just want to learn a little bit about you and your experience and why you wrote that blog and and so, <laughs> so find some champions and people who are actually doing the work who may be a little further along with than you and, um, and see if you can get some perspective. Renee, do you want to add anything about that? Well, yeah. I will say that I think one of the unique features of this training that we do is this race caucus work. Because sometimes, I mean, so I lead the, the white caucus and this is, we come together, we say we are sent, we are, our goal is to build a, an anti-racist organization. And we are in doing this and an organization where all people feel a sense of belonging, but we, what, what, what do we as white people need to work out in order to get to the place where we can come to the table with the rest of the group. And 
it was really interesting. I mean, people talk about can can go through some of that shame and powerlessness without wait, you know, wasting the time of the BIPOC people in, in the group. So um, we, you know, we we did this with a group and that we had the caucus meetings, we came back together, and then one of the you know, people, people were kind of looking at each other, the, it had been pretty emotional, some of these conversations. And so the, one of the, uh, one of the BIPOC men looked at the group and kind of said, what'd you guys talk about? And we had this woman, we'll call her Emily, and she raised her hand. She said, you know, I just, what we talked about was the, the, the shame and sadness that we are feeling about racism and about the impact of racism. And then this man in the BIPOC caucus said, well, that's what we talked about too. And it was really this, this amazing moment of like, okay, maybe we're not as different because we're, or, you know, how do we, we can find these, these places to bridge what we're trying to, what we're trying to do. And not all problems were solved, but, <laughs> but we started to, to get to some, some understanding. What, what do you say, Crystal? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and when there's anger that comes out of it, you know, we had um, a black male stand up and said, you know, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of trying to convince white people to want to be on this board with me. You know, and if they don't want me here, I can go back to my community where I'm wanted and I can work on, in, on other things. I don't have to be here. I'm tired of fighting. Um, and, you know, I, we applauded him for having the courage to stand up and, and really share how he, you know, how he was really feeling. And we were all taken aback, um, but it was definitely a moment. And um, so we're glad that we're providing space for people to feel comfortable to, to do that. We round out our training after we do all of this work is, um, um, is we try to come together. If we can come together in person, we can, because a lot of the training is done virtually, but we try to end the training with all of us in the room. And it's really nice after having seen each other in these little boxes for all these months, that Renee and I can actually shake hands with people in the first, the first 10, 15 minutes of the training, we're just kind of all sitting around kind of kicking it. And it's just kind of nice. We're just talking, getting to know each other. Um, but we do do some more work and, and we end the training by inviting them to come up with some priorities and goals that they're going to work on. Because, you know, our, our time with them is, 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 is finite, right? And so we want to make sure that once we leave, um, that their work continues. And so we realize sometimes it seems so overwhelming. There's so many things they want to work on. But we tell you to pick three things. You know, three things that you're going to work on this year. Um, and then each group comes up with what those things are. And then once we decide, they decide what they are, then we, we put some timelines and benchmarks and who's going to do what to it. But uh, we want to leave them with a plan so that they continue to, to do the work past Renee and I. Yeah, that's so important. And I appreciate what you said about uh, the caucus. And I feel like white people sometimes will be like, what? Why, why would we do that? This is supposed to be diversity training. And but I really appreciate how it creates a space for right the white folks to work through that shame, have all those emotions and not burden the people of color, not just waste their time, but also stress them out, in, you know, from an emotional labor point of view of having to listen to all that, like, no. <laughs> and so I think one thing that I would say, you know, Crystal, you said you did a lot of reaching out to people who were one step ahead of you. And I would say for the, the white people listening, try to find other white people who are a little further ahead versus reaching out to the people of color that you know, who are already like, have had it with telling white people about this stuff. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about my caucus on Carol is that, you know, I have, um, people of color. So it's not just black people. 
So, I, you right. know, we have black people, we have Asians, we have Hispanics, we have, and even in our group, we sure. can't club people, people of color together and think that they even all have the same experience because their experiences are all very different. And even in the group, you'll find the, a lot of the black folks are speaking up, they're angry, and then the Asian folks are quiet. Right, they're not saying even in the group where they're supposed to feel comfortable with all of us because we're people of color, they still feel like it. So we have those conversations about why is it that black people always feeling like they get all of the attention? Why are we ignored? You know, why can't we ever talk? And so, you know, and they're like, you know, we just been told our culture tells us to be quiet and stay stay in the background, stay small, you know, and then Latinos have their issues. So we have very interesting dialogue, even in the people of color caucus. It's oh, very sure. different. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, that that black, white binary is, you know, certainly something embedded in our culture in the US. And then we've, you know, lumped this enormous group of like the, the most people in the world into one group as if they all had common experience and they all come with different cultures, different norms. And so, yeah, that's, that's for sure gonna, gonna come up. I, I would love it. You talked about modeling a couple different times. And if you indulge me, I wonder if you guys might model the racial autobiography oh, exercise sure. that you do when you do the training. I wonder if you just would do that for a few minutes. Sure. <laughs> All right. Woo. You're putting us, putting us on the spot here. <laughs> so, so what I, uh, this is so interesting in terms of reflecting on what, on the conversations in race about race in my home as a white Jewish person. And what I noticed when I thought more about this is that we, we didn't talk about race and we never talked about race. It, it, um, rarely. It was almost impolite to notice someone's race or to refer to it. So there was something bad about bad about mentioning race. And but the funny thing is, I personally was so curious about different people's experiences, but there wasn't even really any space because it was sort of like it was the wrong thing to do. And the only thing that I uh, and I feel so sad about this talking about it, but the only thing that I remember was hearing about a black neighborhood as an unsafe place. And so that was all that, you know, that was most of what I had in my, my mind and my images. It was this kind of fear and, um, and boundaries. And I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work over the last five years to shift all of these images, but they are powerful. And yeah, I, I mean, that's, uh, I guess I'll leave that here. And, well, thank you for Renee for having the courage to share your personal history and your personal story. We really appreciate hearing it. You're welcome. What about you, Crystal? Yeah, so um, I had quite the opposite experience in my family. Uh, and so uh, race was talked about all the time. Uh, and I always share um, uh, the story about me being a little kid playing on the on the floor with my dolls and, and hearing my father and my uncles stand around the bar having drinks talking about the white man. Um, and the white man is not going to let us do this and the white man is going to do this and the white man he has his foot on our neck and the white man. And I remember as a little kid thinking, who is this white man and why is he so mean. <laughs> and is he coming to our house. <laughs> And so I grew up um, uh, hearing uh, that we should be fearful of white people. 
Um, and there were times and instances when we would be out in public. And I, I bring up the instance when we were in the mall one time and we were about to go down the escalator. Uh, and we got there first, me and my family, but a white family was coming and they got there maybe just a minute or two behind us. And I was just about to step onto the escalator and my mom pulled me back and pulled me aside to let the white family get on the escalator first. And she said something like, oh, sorry, sorry, come on. And then she said to me, get out of the way. Come on over and get out of the way. And I remember thinking to myself, why couldn't we get on the escalator first? And why were, were we being a nuisance just by pre being present? Um, you know, the white folks didn't ask to get on first, but my mom felt like it was the right thing to do to push us out of the way to let them go on first. And so I was constantly being fed that white people were superior and that we were inferior and that we should be fearful. And so I didn't even realize that. And then I was bust out of my neighborhood, which was the message that my neighborhood was not good enough, right? And so I was constantly fed um, that black people were, were not um, uh, the same as white people. And so I didn't even realize all of that, Carol, until we started having these conversations that Renee and I are having, how much that was inbred in me um as a child and so uh, it's taken me a long time for me to kind of come around uh, to my own feeling of self-love and self um acceptance and self-worth um and particularly in doing this work yeah no i appreciate i appreciate both thank you of so those much stories. Thank yeah you thank you so much your story <laughs> and then since i put you guys on the spot i guess i'll have to reflect on my own i mean i think yes. mine is in common with renee's that you know race was invisible to me i grew up in very segregated areas here in you know the greater washington dc area and then um my dad was in the foreign service so we were overseas in europe so it was primarily um, you know, European, although the, the, the country's um, demographics were changing as I, as I was growing up in two different places. And um, so when I've had, had these conversations before, and it's been reflected back to me that the, the time that I noticed race was when there was a black kid in my class in, in first grade, right? And so that's when it was a, an awareness for me or um, when I was on the London tube and I first saw somebody with dreadlocks and was like, what is that? And I was a kid, you know, and so I, I think, I think I had that experience of a lot of white people that since I was part of the dominant culture and had so many boxes that check off the privilege boxes that, that race to me was pretty invisible and, and not, and not spoken about. And so, yes, to have to unpack and un- I think we all are untangling all these messages, all these things that we've internalized um, and, and just need to keep doing that to, to you know, free ourselves from all of this as much as we can. Oh. Well, thank you, Carol, for sharing that. That's very brave. Really appreciate your sharing. So you talked about um, some steps that, and obviously every organization is gonna have uh, different steps that they're gonna be taking as they move along in this journey. <laughs> Um, what are some examples of success? I know Renee wants us to, to look on the brighter side and not just focus on the problem and think that there can be solutions and, and we can move in, in a direction of helping more people have a sense of belonging. What are some successes that you've seen? We, we have gone through the process with a couple of organizations and God, no, we, again, we haven't solved all problems, sure, no. but we have, we have worked with them to, to um, 
foster conversation and build a plan and can and uh and that they would continue the work going forward and also we have gotten them to make connections between their work on the board and why this why it matters to build belonging and talk about race so for example we worked with an arts institution and we started talking about well who needs to be served who is served now but, you know what what you know where is the organization located where are you uh, creating events and, and why does this matter in terms of even the future of your organization right so it's like this isn't just about us in the room it starts with us in the room but it really radiates outward in terms of the future of your organization and if you're even gonna survive because it's like are you only gonna be an organization that's gonna serve white people in this white neighborhood? Or are you going to be something that belongs to the, you know, people of all races and getting them to think about that? And so really deepening what is at stake here. And Renee suggested that, you know, because I think one of the issues that we found with that, with that group was that the, the Black people in the community felt like, you know, the museum was not located in, in their community. It wasn't, didn't have access to it. And so we, we talked about maybe having a pop-up exhibit and taking the exhibit to them, to their community, maybe in their community center, maybe at their library, maybe in a place where they can walk to it as opposed to having to take three buses and two trains uh, to get to it. And I know that that is something that has been considered. So we're praying and hopeful. Um, that they will take some of the things that we said into consideration and maybe try to reach across the lines and, and give access uh, to the artwork. Um, and, and, and also, you know, there weren't many pieces of artwork in that museum that represented those communities, right? And so Renee and I actually pulled out one of them um, and had them talk about it. Um, and But why was that one? I actually went and visited that museum and that piece of artwork, which is absolutely beautiful. It's on the back wall behind like four or five different walls. You got to walk in and out. You kind of have to walk in and out of the, and then on the very back wall, that one piece of, of artwork uh, representing a, a, a church scene of people of color. But if you don't make it to that back wall, if you cut your visit short and you decide you're going to go get some ice cream or something and, and not make it to that back wall, you're going to miss that piece. And mm -hmm. so why is that piece on the back wall, right? And so all of these things, you know, <laughs> all of these things are things that we, we, we brought to their attention. And so preferably they've moved that piece and we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and those, those kind of looking for those glimmers of hope. And I think it's, it's taking away those blinders. So, you know, I talked about how for me it was so invisible and now, you know, I can't look anywhere without seeing the implications. Um, and... And I think also just like everyone has biases, it's built into the way our brains work. Um, so the shame that people have about those, yes, those are the stories you were told. Those are the stereotypes that are in the culture, but how can you start you know, questioning those, thinking about it differently? And it, it's still kind of in you know, the stem, right? The way back, a part of our brain that, that's always just looking for foe or friend, foe or friend. And uh, we have to have all those shortcuts or we wouldn't be able to manage in the day, but then it's like take slowing down, taking the time, questioning, like taking a pause saying, ooh, no, that's not how I wanna show up. How can I do it differently moving forward? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I wanted to mention uh, Resma Menekem, who we just really love his work, a Black man who talks about Black bodies and white bodies and what we're carrying around in our bodies in terms of love and fear and hate and all of this, because this is very much, you know, sadly, you know, and, and other people have done work in this also is it can be very much on an emotional level. And that's where, again, we're, we're trying to, in fostering these conversations across race, to try to get people to rewire a little bit, because this is not just intellectual work. Absolutely, absolutely. Crystal, any, any final thoughts? And then I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. <laughs> no, I just wanna encourage those, those organizations whose boards uh, have not really thought about this or have not delved into this work to really just begin, you know, it, you know, you have to start, you know, what do we say? A journey of a thousand steps begins with just one small step. So you have to just start, you know, and if you're not sure where to start, you know, you can certainly reach out to Renee and I, but find someone um, who could help facilitate the conversations um, because you know, it needs to happen. And there's no longer an option. The world looks different than it did a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago, right? And so um, it's time it's time for you to, to, to do the work. And Renee and I are certainly here to help if, if you need us. Yeah, there is definitely magic in getting started. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Well, like I said, I, I will shift gears a little bit. I do, um, at the end of every episode, I play a game with folks where I ask them a random icebreaker question that I pull out of a box of icebreakers. So I'm going to ask you both of you the same question. Um, who had the most influence on you growing up? since we talked about growing up? Well, I can, I can, I probably can start. I was, um, I was part of a, a Jewish youth group. It was actually called Hana Senesh, uh, BBG. And uh, so Hana Senesh was a paratrooper who was also a writer who was, uh, you know, died in the second world war. And I just really um, appreciated her writing, her thoughts about, community and connection and the challenge of, of all of that and, and her desire for a better world, a better and more just world. So if someone just, you know, comes to mind at, the, at this moment. Yeah, and what immediately came to mind to me was my dad. He just, um, while he, he's deceased now, but, and, um, and certainly while he was not perfect, he, he had a high moral compass and he just um, really just taught us um, the difference between right and wrong. You know, we used to say there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. Uh, and, you know, we laugh, my sisters and I laugh about that today because we, you know, we always say, you know, people don't care. We're always the ones trying to do the right thing and other people don't care. But he uh, was just a, a, a man who believed in hard work. Um, he believed that, you know, if you, if you worked hard, you, 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 got, you got success. And if you treated people right, then even if they don't treat you right, if you treat people right, then you're doing the right thing. And so I think that's probably stuck with me the most. I can always hear his voice in my head. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do the right thing, Carol. 
Excellent, excellent. I, I, I'm trying to do the right thing each day too. So what, <laughs> what are you guys excited about? What's coming up next for you? What's emerging in the work you're doing? <laughs> we got to talk. We're, we're in the middle of trying to write this book. All right. <laughs> well, not even we in the middle. Been, we're at the beginning. <laughs> we have been interviewing people about this, and we have our own work, and we have some, you know, a framework that we have created about this work. So we're really trying to write it down. So yeah, so we're writing a book. We still are offering the trainings for boards. We'd love to hear from people who are interested and, and yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, let us know when the book comes out and we can add something to the show notes and we'll, we'll put links, um, you know, to your bios and, um, you know, the links that you talked about and how to get in touch with you, all of that'll be in the show notes. So, but appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yes. We appreciate you as well. I appreciated Crystal's point that we need to give ourselves and each other grace when engaging in these difficult conversations. It took us four to 500 years to get where we are, and we're not going to dismantle these systems and ways of thinking overnight. Yet, it also doesn't let folks off the hook, especially white people, from continuing to examine themselves, their thinking, and how they show up. And to keep stepping into growth and learning. And for white folks to reach out to other white people who are a little further ahead of them on their equity journey, rather than defaulting to reaching out to people of color in their network. That is part of doing your own homework as a white person. I was also struck by the differences in each of our racial autobiographies of how within white families, Renee and mine, there was little or no conversation about race and how in many, but not in all ways, it was invisible. invisible. And for Crystal, the experience was quite the opposite. The topic was, a, it was a topic of conversation frequently. And in both Renee and Crystal's story, there was an element of being taught to fear the other. So it is an uncomfortable conversation, especially if you're white and you're not used to talking about race, or even if you were taught it was impol- impolite to talk about or a taboo subject. Crystal's observation that white people come into the conversation with fear and people of color with anger, strong emotions to handle and uncomfortable emotions to have in the workplace. As a fellow white person, I invite white people to step in and manage their fear and be in the conversation, knowing that you will make mistakes and screw things up. And for all the people of color that uh, that I've interacted with, I appreciate the grace, the generosity, and the patience I've observed over the years and that I've been granted. All in many ways, probably undeserved. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Renee and Crystal, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Kuster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. We want to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.